Well, good evening, everyone. While well, I adjust my uh, shirt from my hot pack on my neck, which is not doing well. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Barbara Peters from the Poison Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it's my pleasure to do a second Zoom event with the wonderful Lauren Nusset. Um, because we talked last year when she wrote The Resemblance. Was it last year or the year before? It was last yeah, year. This time last year. Yep, last November. And The Resemblance, I'm pleased to say, won the International Thriller Writers Award for Best First Novel. So yay for you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have to say, Lauren is also, let me finish the spiel here. Patrick usually does this, so I'm <laughs> forgetting um, that Lauren has very kindly autographed copies for us again, as she did the resemblance, and we do have them. Um, and you're welcome to order one. This one is called The Professor, and it continues a dark academic. You know, I have to say, Lauren, that um, all in the news at the moment, I'm so grateful that I am not either a faculty or an undergraduate or whatever, because campus, this reminds me so much of the 60s. Um, you know, campuses are all roiled by politics and, you know, well, whatever. What do you think they're being roiled by? Yeah, I mean, and the the professor, especially, it's about student-professor relationships. And um, what I, I was still teaching, I was a professor at a small liberal arts college while I was writing both The Resemblance and The Professor, so, so at least the first drafts of both books, and where The Resemblance looks at um, Greek life and hazing on college campuses, the professor really dives into student-teacher relationships the, the growing mental health crises on college campuses. And I was writing pre-COVID and I think it's only increased exponentially. So um, during and post-COVID, but you know, not just mental health with the students, but with the faculty too, and faculty burnout. And of course the, the politics of, of you know, teaching, um, not just with the students, but it, between faculty members with their egos and between administrations that maybe don't um, align with uh, faculty interest or what the faculty want. So it was a heady time to be, to be writing and I think continues to be so if you're in that world. Yes, where um, the stakes are. Well, um, years ago when I taught at ASU, um, Arizona State University for three years, crime fiction, I remember I said this before that one of the selections I did was Tony Hillerman's Edgar Winter. And none of the students could believe that anyone would kill for faculty advancement, you know, for basically tenure and called the thief of time. And they all discounted that as, you know, like the stakes are just way too low here for murder. Yeah. But in point of fact, if you are living in that world, that is the high stakes. Right. Yeah, getting that tenure track position. And now, more so than ever, those positions are, are really disappearing. And so you have faculty members and grad students who've spent all this time in school, they've been trained to do one thing with their eye on that one job. Mm -hmm. And if you have 400 applicants for one position who are all well-qualified, well-published, have impressive teaching records, what wouldn't you do for that job? Well, <laughs> and I think Professor also looks into just the identity, it becomes your identity. And that was something that as I was kind of tiptoeing out or thinking about tiptoeing out, I was reflecting a lot on, on, and even if you look at my bio, it says former professor turned novelist. There's this part of me that still identifies that way that has a hard time 
letting go with that way I've seen myself. And I think that's true for a lot of faculty. Right. Well, you know, I remember at the crossroads of a decision years and years ago about what I wanted to do. And since I am, you know, so much older than you, um, I thought about law and I was told that I would wind up in, um, you know, family law or child care, which or you know, child law, not child care, which I didn't care about. And if I wanted to teach that, that would be, I don't know, I just couldn't really get into it. So I did other stuff. Then I wound up being a librarian and now here I am a bookseller, but um, I've been grateful for a long time that I did not choose uh, academic life because I, uh, it really would not have suited my temperament. Um, and I can see why it would be very difficult for a lot of people to, the more corporate version of universities as we now have them. Um, and, you know, the, the politics of it are, are just so... I mean, the, paper, the Wall Street Journal every day, which is the one that usually covers the politics of universities, every day I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Arizona Republic, hoping to get, you know, kind of a spectrum. But, um, you know, there seems to be this whole fervor at the moment for protesting and, um, you know, sort of an untamed left going out there. Um, I find it I find it really intriguing. We've had several things here at ASU protests about um, faculty either speaking out or not speaking out or groups hosting or you know not hosting. And it's like anything you do creates a reaction in a sort of social media mob, you know, kind of a thing. Um, which I think has to really keep the campus roiled. But you know what? I just don't remember. Lots of students sleeping with faculty and vice versa. So maybe, maybe we just kept it quiet in the 1950s and nobody noticed. Maybe it was always going on. Um, yeah, and I think we didn't talk about things, but here in the professor, it's not even necessary. We don't know, right, if there was an affair, but it, because of social media, the accusation goes viral and people believe this professor has had this affair with the student before there's any proof or even in the investigation is completed, the Title IX investigation. So you also have that aspect of social media where people make decisions about something that they're very, you know, little informed about. And then there are real consequences, real life consequences for the people involved. I think so too. Um, I didn't complete the introduction uh, for Lauren. So I will go back and say she was a former professor turned novelist and the award-winning author of the thrillers, the professor and the resemblance. Have you already won an award for the professor? No, just the just the resemblance. <laughs> kind of anticipating, right? Uh -huh. I love it. Her books have been Amazon editor picks and covered in, everywhere from the New York Times to E and Paste Magazine. And I already mentioned that she won the thriller award for best novel, but she also uh, was named a book all Georgians should read. You know, we have something called One Book Arizona. Is that more or less what we're talking about? Yeah, this is with the Georgia Center for the Book. And so they always choose 10 adult titles and 10 nonfiction titles each year for all. And since I'm from Georgia and the book is um, set in Georgia, that all Georgians should read. Got it. Now, Lauren holds a PhD in German literature from the University of California, Davis. 
So, you know, when I was at Stanford, I don't, I can even, hardly even remember the University of California, Davis. It was very much embedded in wine culture, wasn't it? And, you know, agricultural stuff. Yeah, well, it started as Berkeley's agricultural extension, that and then, yes, now it's it's known for its viticulture program because it's, of course, so close to Napa and Sonoma and all those wine regions. Right, and you have what a master's degree from the University of Georgia. What's that in? That's also German. 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 What what interested you in German as an academic subject? I mean, I studied German, and I found it a challenging and fascinating language. I think I was drawn to the literature. Um, so I studied 19th century literature was my specialty. But we, when I was younger, we moved to Germany. So when I was 12, we moved there. And that piqued my interest. And then I studied comparative literature and German in college. My first job was an internship with Porsche, so a German company. Oh. I quickly realized I did not like working at it. It was NPR, which I enjoyed, but I did not like the desk job. This was also pre-Me Too, and I didn't like the politics of working at a car company. Um, so I went back and surprise, surprise, also specialized in feminist studies, but I really wanted to do comparative literature. But in order to study comparative literature, you have to have a, a good comprehension of four to five foreign languages. And I had... German and a working, very, very rudimentary knowledge of French. So German lit was the way I, way I went. So I spent an entire quarter with a wonderful professor whose name I cannot recall, but he was an award-winning professor. And all we read is Goethe's Faust. And oh. you know, it was fabulous to dive into a work over, you know, all those weeks. And, um, you know, I've read Verter, seen the opera a whole bit. Um, and other other works by Goethe and so forth, but Faust really is an incredible um, achievement, and you know, well worth loads of study. So, is that the kind of thing that you were reading? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I wrote about Werther um, in my dissertation. I wrote about Goethe a good bit just because I was doing nineteenth century. Right. I, I focused on female authors, but he had a relation, you know, friendships and. Um, uh, writerly relationships with some prominent female authors of his time, like Sophie von La Roche. And um, yeah, I mean, he's fat, he's the Shakespeare of German literature. So you, I think if you study German literature, have to read him. And did you read Faust one and two or just Faust one? One and two. Yeah. And that, I mean, the second one is such a sprawling epic that you need to understand, you know, mythology and everything else. But I think it's incredible to have that as someone who did study comparative literature and we would be asked to read so many pages in such a short time to have a semester that we did that once with War and Peace. We read War and Peace over an entire semester. And that was that actually, I think that course is what made me change from I wanted to study international business and I changed to comparative literature because of that course. Well, it is here you are well prepared to write about dark academic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went through all this because I think dark academic is a, um, everything, every genre now gets a label, but um, I think, you know, most people refer back to the secret history by Donna Tartt, but in point of fact, you could, you know, like refer back to Gaudi Night by Dorothy Sayers, or there's something, I mean, you know, the basic Agatha Christie setup where you have a, a closed environment, you know, whether it's a country house or something, it also works 
for a college campus or, you know, on Oxford University College or something, so that if you have a crime, you it is encircled. And therefore, you know, you, you don't have just like some random guy off the street who, who, well, you could have, but generally the idea is that you have a limited number of suspects and you have some kind of an investigator and the, you know, there's a containment that allows it to proceed, usually in a linear fashion. And that's so different, you know, from all the, the psychological twisty novels, which can go in all directions and all kinds of time. So why did you, what makes this comfortable for you? What makes this particular sort of structure, story structure, so comfortable for you? Well, I mean, it's very much a write what you know experience, because at least the setting was one that I knew well, and the professor, especially those relationships, I knew well, I knew what that career path looked like, so that more of my research went to the police procedural aspects. So I had to research, you know, a day in a life of a homicide detective and things like that. But I also think for me, because I love reading that kind of fiction too, I love dark academia. And a lot of those titles are set in these Northeastern small liberal arts institutions. And so for me, setting it at this big Southern research university what happens in the resemblance I don't think could happen at a small of arts college um like the mystery itself wouldn't play out the same way it you know does happen in at a bigger university so just taking that genre that I really liked but but investigating what it would look like set in the south set at a big school where you don't know everyone it is still closed but it allows for a slightly bigger network and the first one is set at a place where greek life is prominent um you know having these class sizes that are huge so your professors might not know you as well as um you at the liberal arts college i taught at while i was writing this there's no way i think what happens in the resemblance could have happened there or at I least they would have I think you're absolutely right. I look around me sometimes here and recognize Arizona State now has like four campuses, over 100,000 students. You know, yeah. there's no real containment. I mean, you know, you could you could compress it into like the Barrett, you know, school or whatever it is where they're individual colleges. But that's really, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge structure. You know, the university is vast and then within it, there are smaller colleges. Um, but yeah, I liked, so Athens, Georgia, you know, is that, is, have you had any blowback from Athens, Georgia about you know, setting your books there? No. And, you know, I wondered even from the university, because it's a, it's a fictionalized version of the university, of course, but because I do re use real building names and I haven't, the bookstore, actually the UGA bookstore asked me at the beginning of the year to come give a talk. So I was able to do that in front of all the, you know, red and black sweatshirts. And I had actually some former um, professors of mine who were there in the audience, which was really cool for me. And then a lot of people who went to school or, or are there now, I think really enjoy, it is so firmly set in Athens. And I wasn't living there at the time. I lived there for six years. I wasn't living there when I wrote the books, but I would go back. My late husband's family lived there. So whenever we would go visit we, I would go and I'd, you know, walk the the paths that I had um, Marlet walking. And so it has all my favorite Athens places. My favorite coffee shop is Marlet's favorite coffee shop. Some of my favorite restaurants are there. Um, 
So it's just, it's firmly rooted there. And I think for people who are either looking for that nostalgia or they can just visualize it in their head so far, it's been a positive response of, I know where that is. And that's exciting to read and see in a book. Well, that's great. After all, people said books in Paris and, you know, of all kinds of cities with yeah. obvious uh, real landmarks and so forth. So why not? So talk to me about Marlott because um, here she is again. Yeah. So she, of course, in the, the first book, she is the daughter of a professor. This is why she's first on the scene when there's a fatal run on, on the university campus. She's a homicide detective who is um, very dogged in her pursuit of justice. And she does some things that, and this is kind of a spoiler, but the book's been out for a year um, and you know it as soon as you pick up the professor, but she ends up retiring at the end of the, the first book. So in the second book we pick up and she's now a retired homicide detective. Um, and she was the, she's the type of person that really identifies with her job. So she's kind of lost her purpose. She's also lost really her best friend who was her partner, Teddy, in the first book because of some things that she's done, um, to make that relationship a, a little more estranged. And he realizes he needs to set some, some boundaries with her. So when a student dies near campus under suspicious circumstances, his professor is implicated in having an affair that may have led to his death. Her mother, who is a colleague of the accused professor, asks her to get involved. But Marlitt, she no longer has the same resources that she did when she was on the force. So she has the same skills, same determination, not the same resources. So she really has to get creative in, in discovering the truth. But at the same time, she's also unbound from the rules of the police force, um, which she always treaded, you know, lightly around those lines anyways. But it allows her to do things. And it kind of is like a, a highly skilled home sleuth because she has all the skills, but she no longer can access, you know, crime scene footage or DNA reports or anything like that. So it was a challenging but interesting place to write her from. Well, that's what Michael Connolly has had to do with Harry Bosch as he has aged out of the LAPD. And as you point out, you know, detectives have to really follow procedure or otherwise the evidence and so forth they collect can be tainted and thrown out in court or cause a mistrial or whatever it is. So even if they would like to take shortcuts or they think they know what's going on, they still have to, you know, still have to get warrants to burst into houses and all the rest of it. So it is a lot more free if she is, in fact, no longer in the police. Um, was that part of your reason or was it just a natural progression from the events and the resemblance that she did need to retire? It's more, I... I... I felt a little bit like she needed to be punished at the end of the resemblance for some of her. Uh, she does get to the you know bottom of things, but she hurt some people in the process. So part of it was a bit of punishing her for doing the things that, of course, I made her do. Um, and so then when I started, it's like, well, here she is because she does she does resign at the end of the resemblance. So what what can she do now? Well, um, true, um, but she's still in Athens. So now that you've retired her and you have also relocated to another place, do you have some idea of moving her? Are you going to continue to write her or do you feel like you've told her story and you may be looking for something else? 
We'll see. Right now I'm working on something a little bit different that is set in Nashville, which I'm very excited about because it's the first time I've actually been living in a place that I am writing. And it's with a, a female PI who only takes on female clients. She loves Dolly Parton. She loves her little red sports car. She, where Marlette is always staring down, you know, suspects. She just wants to give everyone hugs and cookies. So she's a very different kind of character. Um, and it's a really fun switch, um, to, to write from. So that's what I'm working on right now. So for those of you watching it, um, the international crime festival called DoctorCon is actually going to convene in Nashville, uh, right before Labor Day next yep. summer. And yes. there are quite a few crime writers who now live there. JT Ellison lives there. Brad Thor lives there. Now we know that Lauren lives there. I could probably come up with a beer list. Um, and there's a lot happening in Nashville. I mean, you know, when I was earning my master's in library science, I spent some time at Vanderbilt, and it's a very, very different city now. Uh, part of that driven, you know, by the music industry, because it is attracted, you know, money and celebrities. I mean, it used to be if you went to Nashville, you basically went to see Andrew Jackson House, and, you know, that was kind of it. Uh, or maybe Grand Old Opry, but it, that's really changed. It's become a, a major, a major city with an interesting culture, um, you know, local but also more national. Are you enjoying that aspect of living there? Oh, I'm loving it. And one reason, so there's a big creative community, but there's a, a good writer community, like you said, mm -hmm. a really supportive network of writers. There's a place called The Porch, and they do a lot of workshops and bringing people together, which is really lovely. There's great bookstores. Um, I did an event at the bookshop last night. There's also Parnassus Books, which is Hatchet's right. bookstore. And it's it's really lovely. And then yes, it's growing, but it still has this small town niceness that is just so lovely where people just still chat with each other. And it's not like a big city where everyone's, you know, looking down and doesn't engage. And that was something I was really looking for when I moved. And I really enjoyed um, finding that just niceness and community here. I found that in Canada. We were recently in Canada. And I could not believe how nice everybody was. Everyone was glad to see you. They, you know, the servers were glad to wait on you. The shopkeepers were thrilled to have you. The you know, drivers, if you put a toe in the street, all screeched to a halt. So, you know, you didn't, I mean, they actually held a train for us um, when we had a connection between Montreal and Quebec. And there had been a medical incident on the train from Toronto to Montreal. And we thought we're toast, you know, because we're going to miss the train. And then how we are, whatever, they held the train. And then they, you know, took everybody's luggage and carried it across the platform, put us all on. And I thought that is never happening at Penn Station <laughs> or you know, whatever. I mean, so you're right. Niceness is a is a great call. The other thing about Nashville I've always found interesting, it's in the middle of Tennessee, which is horizontally much bigger than it is vertically. So you have Memphis on one end, on the river, which is often sort of like suburban Mississippi. Um, it was a very, very different culture. And on the other end, you have Knoxville, which is part of Appalachia, and Oak Ridge, which is, you know, a science thing. And Nashville is kind of like this pivot in the in the middle of these two extremely different cultures, but all in one state. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful state too. You like you said, you have the mountains and you have the sprawling countryside and and then here there's a river and you know, you have 
the Batman building, which I still get excited to see. It's a just cool skyline. Indeed. Well, TVA really made a big difference to Tennessee, which used to be flooded and so forth. It was one of Roosevelt's great projects in the 1930s and I think transformed Tennessee. And now there are, I've noticed there because Americans have decided to sail their own rivers rather than necessarily going to the Seine or, um, you know, the Amazon. And now there are regular river trips that will leave Memphis and St. Louis and wander up through the Tennessee rivers and so forth. But the flooding, which you wouldn't know about, but used to be terrible, has now been taken under control. But I digress, as I always do. So what you say that Marlon has never investigated love affairs, um, but... How does she go about then, you know, in this, in this, I mean, it's a lot of innuendo and all, it's not so much evidentiary. Um, how does she go about investigating? Right, because to a certain extent, you know, there's this allegation, implication that something happened. So she is put in the position of proving something didn't happen. Right. Proving a negative is so hard. It's very, very difficult, especially when one um, person in the relationship has died. And then because of this death, other people feel compelled to keep his secrets. So, um, so she really has to get very, very close to his life. Um, and if you read it, you will see what I mean. She gets as close as possible as she can to, to his life and his experience in order to to discover the truth of what happened then so, not only how he if if he had an affair if there was an affair but also how he died because of course with her homicide training that's also once what she wants to get to the bottom of so the the victim ethan or the dead person ethan sorry is presented originally as the suicide um or that's sort of the assumption that people have so not only I mean, part of this is to decide, of course, if you're reading a crime novel, the odds that somebody is actually a suicide are, are very weak. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a unknown way to start off a story is that, you know, you have to disprove this easy verdict of, no, it was suicide. Um, and then again, um, because of the affair and other stuff. So there's actually more than one negative to be proved in this thing. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, part of that, too, is that suicides, you know, there's a certain amount of what we want to call it, uh, reputation, restoration, or something that needs to happen. It, it may be marginally more acceptable for grieving fans and family, sorry, grieving friends and family, that somebody was murdered than that they actually took their own life because, you know, suicide always puts a certain amount of guilt on, on the survivors. Um, you know, or at least a question of what could we have done to prevent it? Right. Yeah, that's true. And I think part of what the novel addresses too, because it's talking about the mental health crises of young people is that part of the reason it's initially assumed that it's suicide is because it's becoming so prevalent with young people. Um, and so that's something that the novel talks about as well. You know, why is there this immediate assumption? So do you feel like this is a darker story than the resemblance? They're both they're both dark. I mean, because yeah, they are. The, I agree. Yeah, I it's a more I think it's a more intimate story than the resemblance. It, it goes a lot, it gets a lot closer into 
well, they both have to deal with the psychology, but to me, it feels almost more claustrophobic than the resemblance feels a little bit wider because you're looking at Greek life and those institutions and what's going on with groupthink and, um, you know, just the bad behavior of students uh, unleashed. And um, this one is getting a lot closer to what what people do to each other and, and more intimate relationships and not just romantic intimate, but but friendships and and the professor student relationship as well. So is your third book that we've been discussing, are, is this going to be a lighter, I mean, I can see you smile when you talk about it. So are you, are you having more fun with it? I mean, because, you know, this, books like this, I think, are hard to write emotionally, because, you know, they are dark. So it means you're spending time in a dark space quite a lot while you're creating it. Yeah, it. I mean, it is still a murder mystery. So there will still be dark elements, of course, because you're talking about this huge break in the social code and the, you know, potential loss of life uh but it is because of the protagonist i think being a little bit more lighthearted because it's a female pi with right. loves dolly parton and just even dolly herself i think makes it feel a little bit more lighthearted so it feels more cheerful in a lot of ways um than these two and i think there are moments of levity in the professor and the resemblance just because marlit has a dark but a darkly humorous way of viewing the world um and so that adds some levity and some of the you know conversations that she has adds some levity but you're right I think when I think of the resemblance in the professor I think of them in like dark gray black green tones and this I think this new one is more bright pink and rhinestones which probably has a lot to do with with Dolly <laughs> It really does. I was watching her briefly as I went by. Um, what was it? She was just in some, was it a game? I mean, a football game. It was game. in the football game, the um, Tennessee Georgia. Dallas or whatever? I think, well, maybe this was more recent, but she, for the Tennessee Georgia game, she sang oh. um, the national anthem. Right. Maybe that was it. Uh, once upon a time, um, you know, Dollywood and all, um, if you lived in Knoxville and you went up into the mountains through Pigeon Forge and so forth, Dolly had a had a very large impact there for a very small person. Um, she has an enormously powerful personality. But I remember even, I think actually when I lived there, she was building Dollywood. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't Dollywood from the beginning of her career. It was Dollywood as she kind of moved along and now she's become, you know, a cultural institution and it's not, um, I don't know, do you think that there's the country music vibe still as big in Nashville as, as it was, or we moved on to other kinds of music? I think it has everything, but country music, if you go down Broadway, which is that strip that has all those bars and restaurants where they just play live music every night, all, all night long, and you can just go from venue to venue and hear different um, musicians, it's still predominantly country, but you'll hear rock and um, pop and all kinds of other stuff, especially once you get outside Broadway into the other neighborhoods. There's There's a little bit of everything and a little bit for everyone, which I think is really lovely. So why did you settle on Nashville? I mean, there's nothing to do. Well, it will have something to do with the next book when we talk about it. It doesn't have anything to do with this one. But um, did you shop cities, so to speak, before you decided to move? 
I came up to Nashville a lot and I would rent these long-term Airbnbs and I kept wanting to extend my stay. And so that was one sign to me that I should be here. And I met people before I moved who are now my friends who I see. In fact, I did an event Tuesday night at the bookshop and there were two people there who I had met at the bookshop over a year ago at a book club they did when I was thinking about moving to Nashville. And we've become friends. I now do my own book club and then they were there supporting me on Tuesday. And so I think there's just something about that community, that supportive nature that was a big draw for me. Excellent. Well, you've clearly abandoned the rigors of academic life for the uh, uncertainties of the writer's life, but you're doing very well with it. Um, do you feel like you know all your you had to have a lot more life a lot of life experience before you really began to write? Well, I feel like I feel like because I wrote about the professor world, I definitely um, even though I've left academia, that still has led me to write these two books. But I also had um, you know some some personal losses after I got the book deal that now I think affect the way I write and the what I think about when I'm writing, um, that I was writing about death. And I wrote things that still feel true to me, but I am very cognizant of, I didn't quite understand what I was writing, or I understand it in a different way now that I've had uh, those life experiences. So I don't, if I had written something in my 20s, I'm sure it would be very different than what I wrote in my 30s. And then what I'll right now that I've, you know, experienced that loss. Well, having to reboot your own life, um, I think probably makes it easier for you to engage in characters who are doing the same thing. It's a hard-earned experience, and I'm sorry that you had to go through it. I wasn't, you know, thinking about that so much. It's just, you know, what what can you say in your early 20s in a in a whole novel that would mean very much. I don't know. Um, I mean, I've known a few authors who have been very successful very young, but I find that people, especially people who've had difficult lives, often are the best writers because they have so much material to draw on. I read once, and I'm not going to remember the poet's name, but she talks about grief being a window that opens and then allows you to connect to other people. And I think that's true. And I think, you know, unfortunately, the longer you live, the more experience this, that you'll have that way. And the more you, you do kind of open these windows for connection that might not have existed before. I think there is something to be said for capturing. I don't know if now I could wholly capture what it was like to be in my twenties and feel invincible. And like, I could bend the world to my will because I think I did believe that in my twenties. So maybe there's something to be said to, to writing from that perspective and, and capturing that. But I, I draw a lot from personal experience when I write. Um, and so I think even though it's not auto fiction, it is still fiction. I definitely needed to have those experiences and and even time to reflect on those experiences in order to write about them. It'll be interesting to see if you go back to Marlott. Um, you know, I'm, it may be that you said whatever you wanted to say about her, but sometimes characters, you know, can, can gain a new life um, or a story will arise that really suits that character. But I think it's great that you're trying something different 
um, you know, to kind of stretch your wings and see what that will be. There, there are writers who, who do, I mean, it, it is intriguing that some writers are more comfortable with staying with the same cast and exploring all of the nuance and all of the, you know, ups and downs and so forth of those characters, whereas others really like world building and want to, you know, every book. I mean, it's particularly true in science fiction, although once you get a series, you're not doing it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a writer. I'm a reader. And I both like series and you get attached to them. But I also like standalones because there's more suspense in them since everyone in it is in jeopardy. There is no safety net, particularly for a, generally there's no safety net in the standalone. Um, and then I also like, I like books like, you know, Gone with the Wind, I've always thought had the perfect ending. You know, she went back to Tara and that was it. You know, we didn't have to know what she did after that. So there was going to be all this life in front of her that she was going to live and that we were not going to follow. But we did, we did stay with her during, you know, the period that the author wrote about. Same thing is true with Rebecca. You know, the house burned down. There they both are. The house was actually the main character anyway. So once the house is gone, it's like all over. But you, you know, you don't really need to know what Max and Mrs. DeWinter do. They're, our time with them is, is, is over with. But yet they didn't die. Right. Um, and I, I really like that. And um, you can't do that with a series because if you do, the series ends, right? Yeah, there is something nice about the open-ended nature of certain novels that just you can imagine whatever fate you want for them. Yeah, you can keep writing it, you know, in your head. And if you don't like what happened, you can, you know, kind of create like a, a new ending for them. So the other thing I think is interesting, and I should ask you this because everybody wants to know it, has there been any interest in television or film for your books Nothing official. So nothing that is um, nothing official. That's all I can say. There has been some interest, but nothing that is moving forward as of as of right now. But I think Marlit would make an excellent TV detective. Um, I I don't know if you saw Mayor of Easttown with. I saw some of it. I didn't see all of it. Yeah, I, I thought that was incredible. And it really has that that dark sense of place. And then she mm -hmm. plays that great troubled detective so well. And what I love about series is you really get to know those and instead of a movie, right, you really get to know the character in the world. And so that's what I envisioned for her. But we'll see what happens. I agree with you. I think streaming has been an absolute gift you know, for what's been a gift for authors and readers. The other thing is, and we've talked about this quite a lot lately, because now that the writers and actors strike is over and stuff is, you know, starting up again, one of the questions people always ask at events for the authors, you know, like, who would you cast? Like, you would have anything to do with that, because mostly you would, you know, you would not. But um, it's important to remember that even if, if you get some kind of a streaming or movie deal and it it isn't great, um, it, that doesn't affect the books. I mean, it's it's great for authors and it's always good for sales to have some sort of a visual thing, but the really big kick will come if it's a successful adaptation or translation to screen or whatever it is. But it doesn't mean that the books are bad. If the adaptation is bad, the books are still the same. 
And I don't think that, that authors lose readers if they have bad TV or, or movies. But if you have good, you can really gain a whole lot. So, you know, it's, it's a tough thing for for authors, I think, to to watch something that they don't particularly like. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's not, not going to affect the books. I think the harder part is to keep the actors out of your head when you're writing. Yeah, I don't know how it would be, you know, um, I know Karen Slaughter is working on some more of the Will Trent story. And now that it's a TV show, I, I don't know how you don't think of that actor, think of that cast when you're writing. Um, but maybe you've lived with them so long in your own head, that's more powerful, you know, than anything that you see on the screen. Or maybe you don't watch it. I, I don't know what the trick is. I, I know James Patterson said, take the money and run when it came to, to film and TV deals, because you just, once you, you know, you sell your rights, that's, it's, it's their project. So. Yeah. Elmer Leonard used to advise people of that too. He had lots of movies because he was such a dialogue driven author. Then they're almost like, you know, they were almost like scripts rather than, than novels. I've also heard um, authors say that they don't listen to their own audiobooks because they don't want the narrator's voice in their head. So what what about audiobooks for you? Do you have them and do you like the narrator? Do you even listen to it? I So when they were choosing the voice actor for the resemblance who it's the same one, so same audiobook narrator for the professor, they sent, you know, I think five or so auditions. And I really loved um, Saskia Malvergaard, I think I might be mispronouncing her last name, but she does an incredible job. It's not how I hear Marlitt's voice, just because I have, that would be some weird version of my own voice, but she does capture her voice and she really does an incredible job capturing the voice of the other characters too, which I think is sometimes difficult when you're, you know, doing Teddy's voice or, and the professor, she also has to speak some German because the, the professor is a German professor. So there's some German word she has to say, and she did a really good job at that too. So you have listened to it. Does it echo in your mind then? When well, you you're not writing Marla right now, so I guess I, yeah. And I didn't listen to the whole thing. I think because of what you said is I don't want to think. Even it's not even it's the voice, but it's also the intonation. It might be slightly different than how I hear the the stops and starts in my head. So I've I've listened to parts, but not the whole thing of any of them. So another question: Have you had much in the way of mail from? Male is an M-A-I-L, um, from other, you know, academics. Have you had any sort of feedback one way or another from people who are in academia? So I, I still have colleagues who, who teach and they're reading it right now. And I have asked for, um, you know, real time comments because I'm very curious. I think they will understand a lot of what is in there in just a different way than if you haven't taught, you would understand, especially teaching on a college campus. But I've had a lot of high school, even middle school teachers feel, I think, very seen by some of the interactions in the book that they can relate to. And so that that has all been positive. So, so far, I think people who are in that world have enjoyed seeing parts of it represented on the page. So we'll see if that continues. Right. Well, I think you said that well, and they feel seen. I was thinking you may have given them a voice. 
Um, but you know, sort of, sort of the same thing. What about students? Have any students reacted either to the Greek aspects or you know, they're sitting in class and thinking, "Hmm, I've got the professor." <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I've heard more from parents, especially after the resemblance came out. I heard parents talking about, oh, my students going to, you know, this school, they're thinking about rushing or they're thinking about joining a fraternity and, you know, expressing some concern that way. I haven't heard as much from, I've had former, you know, students who have reached out and told me that they've read the books, but I haven't had any students contact me directly. I know with the resemblance, just in some of the you know Goodreads reviews, there was a feeling that I, as the author, did not like Greek life when it's really Marlit as the narrator who has the bias against, you know, so there's some conflation of the author with your first person narrator, um, but that was nothing. No one, you know, contacted me directly to say that. That was more stuff that was said online, so... Today came a really interesting example, I think, of the kind of thing that, uh, not college, but lower level. There's some woman in Texas who came from Publishers Weekly today, um, which is a, a magazine online and in print for people in the publishing world. Um, and the headline was that she blames scholastic school book fears for her addiction to pornography. I know that was the headline. I thought, seriously, this is taking a lack of personal responsibility to a whole new level, but it gets better. Um, so then I, I then clicked on it because I thought, seriously, you know, and she then claims that because when she was 11 and she read a book that where there was a first kiss that she then became addicted to kisses, whatever it is, and went on and on. And so she wants uh, her school district somewhere in, you know, rural Texas or wherever, um, to ban scholastic book fairs. And I thought, that is so flimsy. You know, how's that even possible? Well, then somebody else wrote to me and said, she's a Christian bookseller, a book, book publisher. And what she really wants to do is have the scholastic book fairs banned so she can have her own book fairs. Um, and I thought, oh my God, you know, this is just like, you don't expect this sort of, Thing when it comes to education is people manipulating for their own economic or whatever advantage and you know if everybody who read a kiss in a book suddenly became addicted to pornography and you know the argument was we have to save our children by having you know no love no intimacy no affection no kiss because somebody might get addicted to it and I thought where are we you know if this is the world we're currently in, where this woman actually has a platform yeah. One, how sad that a kiss, which is something that is so natural, so normal, part of a, you know, healthy relationship. And what we want from books is to, to represent parts of our lives. And so to take even, the, you know, to take out that, how much of our real experiences are we then omitting um, and not allowing young people to read about and then making that stigmatized and sexualized in a weird way. <laughs> Well, exactly. I mean, I think if 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 that pitched her over into an addiction to pornography, practically anything would. So, you know, what could be more innocuous than, you know, 
well, anyway, but it's just an example of how extreme I think things are happening in the realm of education and academia. So I don't know that you could make up anything that is weirder <laughs> or darker than that kind of thing. Jacob, why don't we call you up and see if there are any questions from the audience? And I will probably now be stoned by residents of small towns in Texas who think, that, sorry, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be political. Are you there, Jacob? There you are. All right. Yeah, you have a few questions, Lauren. Um, this one's from Renee. Where does your inspiration come from? Who or what inspired you to become a writer? Oh, I've always loved to read. So I think first and foremost, just being a big reader made me want to write. I wrote my first story, at least the first story I remember in third grade. It was called The Specialist Key before I learned superlatives. So I meant the most special key, but I, you know, didn't know what that was. And that was, a, I think I read a lot of the Narnia books. And so it was this key that opened doors to other worlds. And ever since then, I think I had a lot of great teachers that encouraged me. My mom was a teacher. She was an elementary school teacher. And so she really valued reading and then encouraged me in everything that I did, but also was my first reader when I wrote. And so I had a a lot of inspiration and but ultimately I think being a reader was the biggest inspiration for wanting to write um let's see do, do you okay hold on okay do your characters speak to you what type of relationship do you have with your characters yeah, I think um, being a writer allows you to hear voices in a somewhat normal way, or at least we normalize it through writing them down. But yeah, I heard, I remember very vividly when I first heard Marlit's voice. Um, I was at my parents' house, so it must have been around the holidays in their basement of their old house. And I just, I heard this woman's voice. So in her first person narration, she had woken up on fire and was screaming in a language she didn't understand. And so that made it into the resemblance and then that voice. So the way that she expressed herself became the, the voice, the first person narration of that novel. Wow, that is very vivid. Has that happened to you again? I, I remember writing the prologue of the professor, which is in Verena, who is the professor's voice having a similar experience with that, just writing it in one go and then knowing, okay, this is the voice and now her sections will be told in, in the novel. I think studying language makes it easier for you to do that. I mean, since you obviously, you know, spent a lot of your life learning other languages, is this kind of a variation on that? I don't, I've never thought about that connection, but, but maybe. Yeah, it might, I mean, certainly I chose these protagonists who speak this language, whether they know it um, well or not. So I don't know, I'll have to investigate that, but maybe that might have something to do with it. All right, we have a question asking if you're personal friends with Karen Slaughter. Do you know her? Oh, I wish. I've seen her talk at, you know, Thriller Fest and different places, and she is the most quick-witted, funny human um so if anyone knows her and wants to um set us up she did blurb the professor which was just a huge huge highlight um and she's an atlanta-based author so if anyone wants to get me in touch with karen slaughter so we can be best well, friends fortunately for you karen and i have been together since before she was a published author 
Oh, please introduce us. Please have us together at the bookstore. That would be amazing. No, I'll tell you what, she will be around again in August and I will let you know and you are welcome to motor on out here and join us. I would She's love that. actually just as fabulous in person as she is you know, on and where you're in Canada, she's one of the naturally most. She's one of the funniest persons I know naturally, um, and she can really just drill things too. I mean, she, as you say, she's like a rapier. Yeah. Yes, and so quick, so fast. Right. No, I'll be happy to do that. I'm sure that'd be fun. We also raise money for the newborn kitten organization when she comes out here, because as you know, kittens are her passion. And um, I'll send you a very funny photo of her when she was here in August. <laughs> yes, perfect. Yeah, love to do that. Right, Jacob, anything else? That's it. That's it. Well, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you again, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us and signing the professor. And it was really a treat to, to meet Lauren last year. One of, the, one of the things, 34 years into doing all this, that is probably the highlights of every year is meeting new authors. I mean, I love spending time with authors that we know and old friends and talking about their works, but it's it's just wonderful to, you know, to get to meet new authors, hear new voices, and and then see what happens to them. Not every not every author actually ever writes a second book, which is the same thing. I, I just sort of assumed that if you know, a person wrote a book and got it published it magically, they would write more books, but that's not true. You know, some people have like one book in them. And that's it. So I'm really pleased to see that, um, you know, you've done a second book, you're hard at work and a third book, and you aren't just going to vanish. Yeah, I hope to continue doing this as long as I can. Yeah, I think you've made such a success out of it. You surely will. So thank you very much. Um, today is the last day of November. How can tomorrow be December 1st? There is a mystery to really speculate um, for all of us, but we're heading into the holidays and um, let me wish everyone, if we don't see you again, a very happy December and holiday experience. And don't forget that you can buy an autographed copy of the professor. Yay. Right, night everybody. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.